Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 85th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Elisa Bowie. Elisa is the CEO of Yeski Bowie, an independent REA with offices in San Francisco and Washington, D.C., that manages nearly $750 million of assets under management for 240 clients with a team of 13. What's unique about Elisa, though, is the way that she and her firm have figured out how to leverage next-generation talent through a financial planning resident program that trains and develops advisors with the expectation that they will graduate as residents and leave the firm after three years to be replaced by another new financial planning resident. In this episode, we talk in depth about Yebu's financial planning resident program, how the firm developed an intensive boot camp process to train new advisors in just eight weeks and how to produce the core financial planning deliverables the firm provides to clients the way their financial planning residents gain experience in client meetings while boosting the firm's productivity, and why the firm prefers hiring financial planning residents to a more traditional approach of hiring and developing paraplanners and associate advisors instead. We also talk about the evolution of how advisors are trained and educated as professionals abroad, the rise of master's degree programs to increase the technical competency of today's advisors, the importance of programs like the FPA residency to teach the so-called soft skills of effective client communication, and why Elisa believes that all advisors should at least know how to create a comprehensive financial plan for clients with only a yellow pad and a financial calculator to ensure that today's financial planning software will then be used as a tool instead of a crutch with clients. And be certain to listen to the end, where Elisa shares why the financial crisis of 2008 and 2009 was the hardest moment for their firm but not simply because revenues turned down with the market decline. Why the firm has decided to remain on the AUM model despite being a very financial planning-centric business. And Elise's advice to new advisors and how best to find clients you will actually enjoy working with in the long run. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Elisa Bowie. Welcome, Elisa Bowie, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. I'm, I'm excited for this episode because you have a really wide range of really cool, interesting stuff you've done. I know you're a CEO for your advisory firm that is very sizable at $750 million in our management and 13 employees and working with a wide range of clients. But you have also been incredibly active in, in the profession itself over the years. I know you were in a leadership position when the whole big IAFP, ICFP merger happened into what we now know as FPA. You've published a lot of papers around financial planning. You're now an adjunct professor at the GGU CFP program. And so I'm looking forward both to talking about the business and just, I don't know, what, what, what drives you that after however many years and years of leadership positions, you, you, you still keep get, getting hooked back into more of them, or you keep throwing yourself in to do more of them. Well, I, that was a very polite way of saying that, the years and years. I think when you've been in the profession for as long as I have, it's 35 years, there's just, you've been given a lot of opportunity to do some wonderful things. So, you know, I've been 
a lot of times in the right place at the right time. I mean, just even going back like to 35 years ago, there was kind of equal standing between the CFP marks and what used to be called the Registry of Financial Planners with the IAFP. And, you know, I was just in a good place back then that the my mentor, the man I worked for, was a CFP. And so that's the path I took. So, you know, there's just there's a lot of synergy and a lot of just great opportunity. I think that what keeps me in keeps me coming back is that it's actually just plain fun. I mean, financial planners, you know, as you know, are really nice, fun, generally, you know, gregarious people. You don't come into this business because you don't like human beings. So, Indeed. Right? So, so it's fun. And, and if you think about, you know, where the profession has come in those 35 years, there's just been a lot of change. I mean, 35 years ago, we didn't even have computers in the office. So I did return calculations with my HP 12C and a yellow pad and a pen. And if you see where CFP board has taken the CFP marks over that 35 years, that's pretty incredible what they have managed to make happen. In tr- and I know we have a long way to go. Yeah, I mean, it. it is an interesting context if we dial it back to when you're getting started in in 1983. So, you know, there, there's no, there's no comprehensive exam for the, for the CFP marks. There actually is no CFP board yet because it's still part of the college for financial planning. Like all all of those steps about kind of deepening, expanding the rigor of, of the CFP marks in that world has come in progress over the time that you've been working and involved. Yeah, and if you think about that in terms of the profession, I mean, it growing the CFP marks and making them ever more rigorous and really enforcing the code of ethics, et cetera. I mean, it's what the public needed, but man, it would have been really easy for the profession to go a different route and not have to, you know, have made things more difficult, if you will. So, you know, the fact that that we did it that way, I think, is a, is a testament to the kind of people who are in the business. You know, it really, it's, you know, coming fully to the fiduciary standard at this point for, for all CAP licensees is, I would say, it's a shame it took this long, but I'm happy we're there. Further on, along with your question is, so it said that financial planners are fun and there's just, there's been a lot of opportunity. And I was just really fortunate to have some great mentors who who invited me into participation with the ICFP. And I made a lot of really good friends in the financial planning business. And, and then with it being so fun to hang out with those friends, being in the profession just it, it made me better. I mean, it's just I'm, I'm the, the financial planner I am and this firm, you know, Yeski Bowie is the firm it is. Because, you know, Dave and I have been so involved in the profession and, you know, you hang out with the best and the brightest and you just get better and better. So, you know, that's just one more answer to your question of why, kind of what's what's brought me back in. And then the final one is the whole mentoring thing, you know, as you get older and you get more successful and there's some space, you know, you have some capacity to to spend some time mentoring and teaching. That's probably my favorite piece of, of being involved in the profession now. And that's the the teaching at Golden Gate University and then being a dean for FPA's residency program. And can you can you talk about those for a moment? You know, I, I, I think both 
GGUN and the the residency program. I feel like in, in financial planning programs, there are a few that just have, have gotten a little more well-known over the years. Texas Tech has certainly been prominent for a long time and University of Georgia and Kansas State and a few of those programs that have been there for for a long time in a visible way. I, I find fewer advisors are familiar with, with Golden Gate University, although you've got a, a little bit of a unique program structure there. So can you talk for a moment about just the the GGU program and and what's going on there? Yes, but I'll be in big trouble if I don't add to your list the Pamplin School at Virginia Tech. That's where most of the younger financial planners in our firm come from. And it's an exceptional program, primarily because the two leaders, if you will, of the program are so committed to it. So Golden Gate University is actually the longest running financial planning program in the country, which would also make it the longest running in the world. It started a similar time of San Diego State University. So we, you know, we spar with them a little bit, but those are the two longest running programs in the country. And it is a, it's a master's program. And so it is really well suited for people who already have their bachelor's degree and want to get a full financial planning degree, not just do the certificates, certificate program and take the exam, but they want a full degree. And so at Golden Gate University, you can take the, the seven financial planning courses. And then if you choose with only three more courses, you can go back and get a master's program. And yeah, to put in a shameless plug, right now they're, they are offering basically half price, you know, scholarships to FPA members that will cut those seven courses in half cost wise. So, you know, it's just a great opportunity. And they also, there's also a, an advanced master's in advanced financial planning for someone who's already a CFP. I've already taken the seven classes, but I'd like to get a master's degree in, say, tax, or it's the first financial life planning program in the, in the country. So to that extent, I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a well put together school. It was just ranked the number one online adult and it is a bricks and mortar school. I mean, you can, there are classes and it it exists here in San Francisco, but it's also, everything's completely available online and, you know, that works really well for adult education, obviously. So, so you don't have to, you don't have to go to San Francisco to do this financial planning master's program. It's, it's in the online master's degree program options. All the courses are available online. Yep. So you can get the whole thing online. And I know you've been a great supporter. Thank you very much. We spent many years trying to get to the point where a bachelor's degree was required for for the CFP marks. I think we finally got there. I want to say something like 2006. You can tell when we got there because of the number of people who tried to take the exam right before the requirement came in place. So I think the, the the last CFP exam before the bachelor's requirement came into place was, I believe, the largest CFP exam cycle ever Yeah, <laughs> of people wanting to get in before the rules changed. And and so now we're, we're 10 plus years in with the bachelor's requirement and, and seeing more and more of these master's programs come up. Do you envision that the future of financial applying, like eventually is a master's degree going to be required or is a master's degree just a a good diligent thing to do to advance your education? Like how do, how do you think about getting a master's in financial planning beyond doing the CFP marks, which are already a sizable bar for a lot of people? Right. I mean, I think it's difficult to, I, I, I don't think that a master's degree will be required. I'm not even sure. I would love to get it, to get to a place where it was an expectation, but even back to your point of of a bachelor's degree being required for the CF, for the CFP, 
it only requires that the person taking the exam has has a bachelor's degree. My bachelor's degree could be in basket weaving, and then I can get a CFP certificate, you know, take the seven courses. And so I think that we need to up the ante on people becoming eligible to take the CFP exam. That's my personal. Like requiring a financial planning undergrad degree or at least a, you know, a financial planning equivalent, like some related education, just not not basket weaving. Not basket weaving, right. No offense to basket weavers. No, no offense to basket weavers, but they're they're not qualified to be financial planners. So yeah, I I just I would like to see the certificate. You know, I would like to see the Annie upped a little bit in terms of the education because I see a wide range in doing residency programs and in hiring or in, in interviewing, I guess I should say. I just see a wide range in technical knowledge. And I'm not suggesting anyone should come out of a CFP program knowing a hundred percent how, you know, like just dive in, be a financial planner. You need to be mentored. That's why there's the two and the three year experience requirements, but the technical knowledge matters. And if you're spending all your time getting technical knowledge, when you're first employed, if you will, you're not as far ahead as you could be in terms of all of the relationship building, you know, the, the interior dimension, really learning how to work with and get to know clients. And I know that was part of the, the origin of the FPA residency program as well. So maybe you can touch on that a little bit in this like span of financial planning education from CFP marks, bachelor's, master's, residency. So where does where does residency fit into this spectrum of learning to be a planner? Yeah, I mean, and again, if I were queen for a day, I would require everyone to do a, an FPA or, you know, some re- relevant residency program. And partially because it it just leapfrogs you ahead what it might take. I mean, CFP board gives three months of experience credit for residency. And, and I really think that is realistic. It's reasonable. I mean, it one week at, a, at an intense FPA residency program is going to give you many, many months of experience that it, what it would take for you to get that kind of experience at a firm. And it's because it's experiential. You know, you're basically working in teams, meeting the clients. And if you could see, you know, quote unquote, meeting the clients, because two of the mentors role play the clients. And so you actually, you know, the residents have, have literal dialogue with these clients over the course of about 17 years of their life. They come in three different times at three different stages of their life and they never seem to age a day, but you know, it's, (laughs) but the, the case does. And I will just tell you, it's a transformational experience. The the residents, when they leave, they are in a completely different place in terms of their expertise and their understanding of how important it is to build relationship with the clients, not just know how to do a tax projection or a capital needs analysis. So you show up for a week and basically just you you do financial planning on a hypothetical client who are your deans and professors acting out the the client situation, but it's meant to be like, as you put it, experiential, like a live experiential, you actually get to practice doing live financial planning, and I guess get constructive criticism and feedback on on what you're doing and how you're doing and how you might have done it better with a, you know, with the copy, like everybody's there for the same thing, you don't have to worry about feeling singled out, just everybody's there to learn how to improve their, their technique of how you're actually communicating all this financial planning stuff to clients. 
Yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. It is we ask at the beginning of the week or we, we basically get permission to give robust feedback and not to be mean, but to, you know, these people are spending money and a good chunk of their time to come and get feedback from these very experienced mentors. And, and so we need to give them, you know, what they paid for, if you will. So they actually get feedback from so there are five mentors. They get feedback from three of the mentors each time they do something as if those mentors are like the senior partners in the firm. And then they get feedback from the other two mentors who role play the clients. So they get different angles of feedback and different types of feedback. And it's the residents tend to progress as the week goes on. They start out a little tentative. Oh, my goodness. You know, it's hard to be criticized, if you will. I mean, criticize is probably it, but it's hard to get critical feedback, particularly in a, in a big, you know, a setting 30 people in the room, boy, as the week progresses, like, no, 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 come on, I need more, get a little more, be harder on me, give me more feedback, because I, I want to get better. Very cool. So aside from all the work you're doing with Golden Gate University and FPA residency, and I know you're involved with the Foundation for Financial Planning as well, you, you know, on the side have this little advisory firm thing. <laughs> so talk to us a little bit about the advisory firm like wh what does that business look like you know how how big is it what do you do who do you serve so first of all we are i mean the most important thing to share is that we are first and foremost a financial planning firm yes we charge our clients on aum and yes we have quite a bit of money under management but we do financial planning for those people and you know we can have a dialogue around why charge fees that way if you have any interest in that we do actually have a theory there but the reality is that we are first and foremost financial planning. We just do a lot for our clients. You know, every client gets a tax projection that compares what our projection looked like for last year and what their real taxes look like, and then what it looks like for this year. And then in 18, everyone's getting shown, you know, the difference between their taxes under the new tax law and the old tax law, because people are curious about that. Is it costing me more? Or is it costing me less? So you're literally just doing a tax projection for every client? Yes. Are you are you doing tax returns as well? Like, are you in the tax preparation business as a service for clients? No, we are not. I would shoot myself if I had to do tax returns. So we <laughs> no offense, to any CPAs? Yeah, no. I thank goodness for them. I appreciate them very, very much, so that I don't have to do tax returns. But we love doing tax projections because that that's planning, right? And then we try to work very closely with our clients' accountants, so our tax preparers. So that we're all on the same page. And what do you use for doing tax projections? I feel like this is kind of a gap in our in our advisor space that there are not a lot of tools for doing tax planning. No, there isn't. And you're touching on something that is really, really important to us. And this is true with cash flow planning, and it's true with with you know we do use regular software for capital needs analyses. But I want my advisors to know how to do a tax projection because I don't believe you can do tax planning without knowing how the things you're rec recommending actually impact the tax projection. So if I do my tax projection using a piece of software, I don't know where the numbers came from. So we actually use a spreadsheet that we've built and everyone 
has to keep their brain engaged. We do, it doesn't apply as much anymore, but it includes a, a tab for the alternative minimum tax. And, and then they all, they have to go over it and look at it and say, yep, this all makes sense. You know, I didn't inadvertently mess up some, some cell or some, something because, you know, this, this, this tax rejection makes sense. And now when they're talking to the client, they can, can really do a much better job of saying, so if we did this or no, the new tax law effect you do like that versus kind of the tax projection coming out of what we like to talk, call like a black box. And it's the same, even like we use money tree software for financial planning because it's not a black box because people, you know, and we want our, we want our advisors to know where did that number come from? And if you're not sure where that number came from, money tree allows you to go back and back and back. I mean, it's really like being spreadsheet based. It's not spreadsheet based anymore, but it started that way and it still behaves that way. So that we want our, if I ask you where that number came from, you better be able to tell me that's because this and such thing. Yeah, I know one of the longstanding differentiators that you know, both one money tree a lot of business over the years and is and has kept a very loyal client base is that unlike most of the other tools out there, there is a crystal clear audit. Like any number on any projection on any page, you can get to the underlying like calculations of where that hundred percent. Yes. So it's not a it's not a black box. You don't have to you don't have to wade through every audit trail report if you don't want to, but you can you can if you if you do want to in a way that most of the other applying software you can't like just the numbers go in and the numbers come out and you can't necessarily figure out where the numbers came from which is frustrating if you think they're wrong because there's not even a way to evaluate it or or prove it yeah or it's frustrating if you think they're wrong and it's frustrating if you can't figure it out even if they're right because teach me you know I want to know where that number came from we've tried we have tried and Dave and I we just it, it drives us crazy we just can't can't have a piece of paper in front of us that we're like, where did that number come from? And as you say about MoneyTree, and this is not a plot, I mean, I don't get anything from MoneyTree. We've used them for decades at this point, but, but you can, you can track every number back to the data input pages. And so that, you know, that is just to us, the answer. We just, financial planners have to be good, in my opinion, in Yeski Bui opinion, have to be good with the numbers with with the calculations with the results you know the 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 output of everything in order to do planning because i can after you know decades whatever but and i think our young people can do this better because they know where the numbers came from is to look as they go you know well if we do this here's what will happen oh you want to save this different number or you want to buy that different house and you could almost interpolate like oh okay well that's going to take your monte carlo you know Instead of the 70% number, you're probably going to be down in the 60s if you do that much change. Oh, that's not good. You know, that kind of thing. Oh, you make that little tweak? Yeah, you're going to go from that 65 Monte Carlo to 68. Oh, that's good. So, and you can't do that if you haven't really analyzed the numbers yourself and you don't really know where the numbers are coming from. Well, I'm, I'm struck by that since you know, you're, you're talking about the importance of having the, the numeracy and the strength of understanding the calculations and, and all this number crunching that happens in the various tax and planning software tools. And you're the dean of an FPA residency program that at last I heard, like, you are not allowed to use any of those tools at residency. You can't bring any of that, the technical calculation stuff. So how do you look at bringing those together? 
it actually goes hand in hand, Michael. Those actually go hand in hand because what we're actually saying in the financial – well, we're saying two things in, in residency. One of them is you don't need software to be a crutch. If you actually understand the technical aspects, I think you can do it with a yellow pad or actually in residency. It's with a big flip chart and big magic markers, but you can do – and your calculator. It can be done. Also, the piece in residency that's important is that while we do not allow technical incompetence, that's probably a little strong, but you know what I'm saying, technical errors. You can't recommend a Roth conversion or a Roth countries for someone who doesn't qualify, you know, that kind of technical level. But what we're really talking about in residency is the above the line piece. So it's the building the relationship. It's the interior dimension. It's the what and who matters to these clients and why. Backed up by good calculations, but in residency, not backed up by Super, like we don't run, you know, we would never expect someone to to have anything remotely resembling a Monte Carlo. We just do straight capital needs analysis, life insurance. We do, you know, human value capital analysis, that kind of thing. So it is taking an emphasis off of the technical, even while you can't be fundamentally incorrect in a technical way. Does that make sense? It does. Well, you you made a comment in there about like it's it's one thing to know and use the technology; it's another to use it as a crutch. Like there's sort of a you make sure you're using the technology as a tool, not a crutch, as kind of a, a way to balance those out. If you know your stuff already, the technology just lets you do it faster, easier. You can do more complex illustrations and trade offs, so you don't have to rely on the the yellow pad or the flip pad, but if you have to use the software and you couldn't explain it with a yellow pad or a flip pad, you probably have a gap in your technical knowledge that may eventually come back to bite you, if only because you'll find a pl- mistake in your planning software that you didn't know was a mistake because you didn't know how to spot them because you weren't familiar enough with the numbers to realize that the the output was wrong. Yeah, and 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 the, and the other piece just – in addition to that is you'll, you might miss a mistake in your input. We had a long time ago, we had someone – one of our junior advisors hand Dave an output retirement. I guess it was probably a, a Monte Carlo or Capital News House. And he said, there's just something wrong with this. There's just something wrong. This number does not make any sense. And the real estate taxes had been inflated at 3% a month instead of 3% a year. <laughs> and so, you know, it was, they had $8 million a year of real estate taxes in their, you know, otherwise yep. $500,000 budget 25 years from now kind of thing. Yeah, it's exactly, we have two, each of our, processes they don't it's not they're not literal we don't really have processes written for how to do a financial plan you just do it you do but our processes all start with engage your brain and then they all end with does that does this make sense does what you what you've created make sense look at it and see if it makes sense eight million dollars of real estate taxes with where the rest of the budget is five hundred thousand dollars 25 years from now it probably doesn't make sense so when you talk about being a a planning first firm and doing all this all this planning work. So can you talk about what what else you're doing or what that planning process looks like for clients beyond you you noted the tax projection every year, but what are you doing for for clients on an ongoing basis in the planning realm? So our plans and the updates are individual reports that are held together by the planner. Okay. So what you're really getting is that we don't, we don't print them out and type up a bunch of boilerplate or even a bunch of, you know, it's, it's the output and then you deal with the planner and then you get follow up emails that say, here are the things you're going to do and here are the things we're going to do and here are the things that are still outstanding for us to talk about. So everyone has a net worth statement. And if they are not currently 
retired, okay, not currently spending from their portfolio, they get a Monte Carlo analysis with all of the the backup that goes with that. You know, the let's talk about your cash flow and your what you're going to spend in retirement, that kind of thing. A tax projection for for planning purposes, because we do, you know, there's not all that much you can do, but man, you want to talk about doing a Roth conversion for 35 clients, maybe the end of the year, you better have some tax projections ready to lean on to do that. If they are spending clients, they have a safe spending analysis every year. They have, and then we have an estate flow chart. So it shows where, how their estate documents flow their assets at the first death. And, the, and if they're, if it's a married couple or, or not married, but a couple, it's at the second death and, and in the state tax calculation. Because even though the majority of our clients do not have an estate tax issue with the new estate tax laws, they still, it's still helpful to know who's getting what, you know, how often people look and go, whoa, the kids are getting, oh, that's too much. I need to, to change what I'm, you know, sending to charity, et cetera. Then we do what we call, we call them the templates just because they are templates to get filled in. But there's one that shows people's account beneficiaries. Another one that it shows their estate documents, including executors, who holds their healthcare power of attorney, who's the secondary person for that, you know, who who is the trustee of the various trusts, et cetera, et cetera, and where those documents are located. So it's kind of like estate documents and key people. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That would be a good name for it. And then we have one that is insurance. And so it has all the insurance that we can get information on, including property and casual insurance, when we can get that from clients. And it has whatever we've recommended to them in terms of taking their social security or what they're currently doing if they're already taking their social security. That's pretty much our financial planning output. Obviously, that changes if someone someone has, you know, we add to it, I should say, as someone as people need something else. So we have clients who have options. Well, clearly they have a, you know, they have an output of what their options look like and clients who are receiving deferred comp. Okay. Well, so we chart showing how that money's going to come in over the next five, 10, 15 years, whatever. So there are things added to it, but it's, it's basically a, a bunch of outputs. And then we just go over each and every one of them. And we start with what we call the Yebu map, which is just a pretty piece of clip art, basically with boxes on it that, just create the boxes on it. So you've got a financial hygiene box and you've got a kind of a near term box and an intermediate term box and a retirement slash legacy goals box. And then it's a picture of mountains in a stream and there's a cloud in the sky and that cloud, it's a nice big white cloud. It's not a rain cloud. There live big goals. So if there's something someone really wants to, you know, take a safari or write a book or, you know, own a beach house or, spend time with their grandkids in a way that is going to entail some, not just money resources, but time, you know, some, some impact, some effort that goes in there. And so that's kind of where we start with clients just to say, what's up, what's new, what's changed, what's the same, you know, what do we need to know? So help me vision like how this, for a new client, how this planning meeting comes together. So you, you, you go through a data gathering process, then you start creating this series of like analyses and outputs, I guess. I mean, it sounds like a lot of these are, are one pagers or like designed to be a one page. Like here's the one pager on your net worth. Here's the one pager on your tax projection. Here's the one pager on your state planning flow chart, your account beneficiaries, your insurance policies. Like you've got this group of different one pagers in various areas that, that, that you've made. And then, 
you just give them the stack of one pagers? Do you like do you bind it and put it together? Or are you still writing like an executive summary and action items and that kind of stuff at the at the front? Like what is what's the what does it look like when you get to delivery and, and plan presentation? Well, it's all delivered on their client private page. So it actually links to PDFs and they're all just listed out. All those when I said them to you, other than the map. Every, what I said is basically the order they're in. If you could just picture a two-columned list of links that say account beneficiaries, estate documents, estate flow chart, da, da, da. Okay, and, so you don't name URL link, name PDF link, name PDF link. Just. Yep, exactly, exactly. So, And one of the nice things is you're going through it with a client and it's like, oh, we misinterpreted something or something changed. Oh, that's easily fixed. You know, By the time you get home or you know, at least by the end of the week, that report will be redone and will be reposted for you. So it's always there for them. They can print it out. We, we have a couple of clients who – do want actual hard copy when they come in to meet. And that's easy. We just print it out for them. It's still on their client private page because that's where we keep it all. And there's an interesting thing, Michael, doing it the, this way for us is you always know what the most current report is because it's the one on the client private page. And I mean, I clearly, you know, you can you date documents and stuff, but I'm just saying you'd always readily get to the most current document. There's also a page on their client private page that has a task list and a questions list. And so we keep track of just, it's it's not a comprehensive task. A comprehensive task list goes in a, in a very comprehensive email after the fact. The task list on there is just something to remind them of the big stuff. and Or if there's a question that we really need to remember to ask them or almost most, almost more of a case of it's the nagging place for the client. It's like, gosh, do you note that we've been asking for your estate documents for the last five times we've met, you know, that kind of thing. So there's that. And then the, so that and the client private page then has the financial planning reports and then it has the portfolio reports and it has another tab on it that has what we call tax reports. It's really their billing statement for back in the day when it was, those were the, these were deductible and whatever their, IRA required minimum distribution was if they have one of those or a Roth conversion. It's got that stuff on it. So they know how to get stuff readily to their accountants. And then we have a resources page, which is really our investment webinars, including our investment philosophies on there. It's, it's the resources page is the same for everyone. It's a place where they can readily go and upload, securely upload things to us and that kind of thing. So like, what are you using to power this client private page with all the different stuff like you you know the things you're discussing here of like the the you know the column of links of here's the various reports in your downloads and and a and a task list page and resources page like i don't feel like this fits very well into standard advisor technology tools that we have is there some tool i'm not aware of or did you build something like how do you actually deliver this so we're using something that is so old, it's actually not, it's no longer supported. It's called WordPress. And it's something, I don't know if, you know, Dave kind of created client private pages. I mean, he was one of the first ones ever, if not the first ever. It's been, you know, 30 years that he's been doing something like this. So I'm not the expert on it. And, and it doesn't really matter because WordPress isn't really supported anymore. But it is nothing more complex than literally uploading PDFs and having a link. Yeah, I know WordPress still powers a lot of sites. I, I guess you had like a, a plugin you made or created that powers it and keeps it going on the back end. I can sort of imagine like just 
there's still a couple of tools out there in WordPress that let you do like member logins to access things. So you're just, you're running your own WordPress site. Yeah, that's exactly what we're doing. And we're switching, like I said, we're switching to something new that I think is going to be a little more interactive for the clients. But it is, if you can just imagine, I mean, just the lay person's translation that's not for you you're not the layperson but for anyone else listening it is literally it's a bunch of tabs on our website that have links to pdfs and we just upload new pdfs each time we redo it and yeah each time we redo them i should say so all the other fancy tools that are out there are just overkilling what can actually be a very simple process of just give clients the one pagers they need to see where they stand Right. And there's something, maybe, I don't know, maybe it's, maybe it's just simplistic, but to me, there's something elegant about having everything stand alone a little bit. Now we do, everything's in money tree. So we're, you know, we're pulling it together there. It's not like we're not making sure everything is, is coordinated, if you will, but I don't know, just having, oh, you want, client wants to talk about this in depth and not that. We're not ruffling through a bunch of pages or, or even we're not ruffling through a bunch of PDFs that are all attached. You just are going, you know, just going to each individual one. Now we do do upfront when we do a new, an initial plan, we do do a PowerPoint for that. And it is super high end in terms high end, you know what I mean? Like 30,000 foot level. Yeah, not high end, high, high whatever, high, big picture. High level. Big picture. Yeah, feet. high level, big yes. picture. Yeah. So it's super big picture, but it talks about what the, what the client, you know, who matters to the client, who and what matters to the client and why, and what the key drivers are and choices and consequences, all the stuff we teach in our capstone class and outstanding, you know, challenges and questions. And then, you know, again, just high level recommendations. But the real like planning work is sitting in the room with the client and then the follow-up afterwards, including a very detailed email that's, again, that says, you know, after every meeting, who's going to do what, when, how, and what are the other outstanding items that haven't been decided yet or have been parking lot, tabled, whatever you want to call it. So you, you've mentioned kind of the, the depth of these follow-up emails a couple of times. So can you talk to us a little more about just what this is, how you do it, who does it, like, what's the deal with emails? I feel like we all tend to send emails to clients with some frequency because there's a lot of communication of that, but you seem to be doing something a little bit different here. Yeah, our emails are very, so they're actionable. We send lots of emails to clients, but the, the follow-up emails, we like to say they are all actionable items and we tend to write them in bullet form, you know, a paragraph was really nice to see you. So happy to hear that you got a new puppy dog, you know, that kind of thing. And then here are the things that we're working on. Bum, 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 bullet, 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 bullet. Here are the, the items you you were going to send us. Bullet, 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 bullet. You know, here's the link to upload that securely. And then here are the things you're taking care of. Bullet, 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 that kind of thing. And then we you know, follow up regularly and say, is it, it's, it's, it's not complex it's it's not but it's not it's not 15 pages of here's what we did in the meeting it's what were the actionable things that came out of the meeting so that clients know what we're taking care of for them what they need to what they agreed to you know what they want to take care of based on their own goals and then again what's kind of outstanding that we need to make sure we address so you you have all of these tools that you've created and then you're doing these in-depth emails and and annual tax planning projections and the rest. So can you talk to us a little about the 
the staff infrastructure of the firm? Like, how do you how do you get all this stuff done? And particularly when I think about things like doing tax projections for every single client, like that that's not a trivial amount of time. <laughs> Multiplied across all the clients that that you're doing this and and you know updating all of these one pagers, like you know, I'm sure it gets a little bit easier once you made the template, but that's still a lot of just detail work that's that's getting done. So what is the what does the staff structure look like for the firm to do and deliver all of this? So so it is a lot and and it's where you know being a financial planner is it is time intensive. It's it's much easier to 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 stop at asset management. We have a structure where each if you can picture our our CRM, you know, each client on on their very front page in the CRM has four slots and one they say one C, two C, three C, and RFPC. So that means first chair, second chair, third chair, and resident financial planner chair. Now, rarely, if ever, are all four of those slots. Each client does not necessarily have four people, four financial planners backing them up. But different people have different levels of expertise. So if you take a one setup might be the first chair is Dave. Yeski, and then the RFP chair is Ryan, uh, one of our residents. And then there might, there's probably going to be a second chair or a third chair in there. And that's going to be someone who is a, we call them lifers. I know it makes it sound like prison, but it's not. But the people who we anticipate being with us, you know, indefinitely. So it, it's a little bit like a training hospital. And, and we actually use it as an analogy, but what's really important to point out, and you talked about before we started, we were kind of, you know, framing this conversation and we talked about struggles and challenges and maybe even, you know, failures that companies have learned from and, and that kind of thing. So we may be a, a training place, but we have over the course of quite a few years figured out how to be productive in that way. Okay. So it's not like, oh my gosh, are three people doing everything for this client? It's like, no. First of all, when our new financial planners or resident financial planners, they're treated the same. When they come in, we do what's called boot camp and they learn how to do these tax projections and the estate flow charts and, you know, how to read an estate document, how to do an estate calculation, estate tax calculation, you know, where and all the, the template information, you know, all those account beneficiaries, center, that's all in our CRM. So we're keeping track of it there. And then it just prints out to a Word document. We then PDF, obviously. So the various tasks are assigned and and the work is done at the least senior level possible. And then passed on. So if in my example, if Ryan is doing, you know, tax projections for five clients, well, he may pass them by Lauren Stancil, one of our lifer financial planners, or he may pass it directly to Dave. It just depends on capacity and maybe whether the client is someone who Dave knows their situation best. And so it makes sense for him or, you know, in the case of, of, or I know the client best. I was using Dave as an example, just because he's not here. So there are layers, layers of expertise, if you will. But first, everyone who comes in goes through this boot camp and learns how to do all of these reports, if you will. And of course, how to use money tree and how to actually read a tax return and translate that into a tax projection for the coming year and so on and so forth. 
So a couple of questions here or comments. Like one, I'm just I'm I'm struck by what I feel like is a a very straightforward philosophy, but one that is not embraced in a lot of firms. That work is always done by the least senior staff member first, and then it's passed up the line for for review. Like I I know we talk a lot about hey you've got to free up your time by figuring out how to delegate things down, but I feel like you're at it. You're coming at it from a whole other level when you say, no, 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 it, it, it starts at the least senior member and it just moves up the line as it needs to be reviewed. Don't, don't start at the top and delegate down or you won't delegate enough. Right. And it starts at, it starts at the least senior after they've been through intense training. So we used to, and I was talking about challenges or even failures. We, used to do it where it was kind of bouncing back and forth. And so each like second chair had to train each third chair or resident to do each individual tax return, tax rejection. Not anymore. We now spend an intense seven or eight weeks. The first seven or eight weeks, new people are with us and they spend an entire week on tax predictions and they might do 25 of them. Oh, wait, you just saw how now if I have two new people, how 50 and there'll be a lot of work for the supervisor, for the second chair or Dave or I to do in this. Okay. But, but we just got 50 tax projections done in that boot camp time period. And then the next week they'll do, they'll, they might each read, you know, 15 sets of estate documents and do 15 estate flow charts. And then the next week they're, you know, they're going to be moving into money tree, working on the templates and then safe spending analyses. So by the time they're done with that intense, they're pretty, you know, they're not perfect by any stretch, but what is getting passed up the line, if you will, is pretty darn good work at that point. Well, to me, it makes an interesting point that, you know, on the one hand, there's this question like, oh my gosh, how do you do how do you maintain all these different one pagers for all these different clients? And it seems like it's it can be very staff and labor intensive. But the flip side is, yeah. So if you're in a growing firm that's hiring people, like you will have a steady flow of new talent that needs some busy work to do. And it's not just busy work for them, it's learning boot camp work for them. It's 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 live practice that they need. And and so the you know, the client gets the output they need. You've got the the staff to to do the work. And they're getting the the learning experience that they need of how to do these things so that eventually they can do it more independently and then less has to come up the line and then you end up in a better place. Yep, exactly. And I don't know if I've explained one of the pieces of philosophy behind our financial planning resident program is that as you grow your lifer planners, right? They, they want more responsibility. They want to be considered for ownership. They want to work with clients, you know, one-on-one with clients, et cetera, which is fantastic. But as you grow, you can't, you can't necessarily continually have every person move to that level. So then what a lot of people do is they have, a, have pair planners to support those lifelong financial planners. And so our process, our thought process is let's not have para planners. Let's have full on qualified financial plan program, CFP board registered program graduates come in and learn that work and they will be much better educated to support those lifelong planners than someone who didn't go through a financial planning program. And as long as we can design a training program, boot camp, that can get them up and running rapidly, you know, we can afford 
to have that kind of every three-year turnover of residents. And we're also sending out young people who are, you know, three years out of school who are really well-trained, you know, really well-trained and, and ready to, to hit the ground running for other firms. So, so can you talk a little bit more about this, just this resident program structure you're, you're, you're talking about? Like, what I mean, you've sort of framed them as this is in lieu of para planners, but like, what what is it? What is the financial planning resident structure that you've created? So, so yes, it is in lieu of para planners, and really important to make it clear that it's not that they are doing para planner work. They're doing real financial planning work. If they were, we often run. Well, not we we have regularly run our hiring process where people could come in and they can say whether they want to be a resident, they want to apply to be a resident or an associate financial planner. And then when they come in, the boot camp is the same. Everyone gets the same benefits in terms of FPA membership. They get their CFP, the exam education and prep and time off for for taking the exam and all of their CFP board fees and et cetera. So they all get supported in that same way. The difference is that it is structured in a three-year system where, just as an example, in their, their last year, we try to work with them to figure out what it is they want to do next and build a portfolio almost, if you will, that will help them market themselves. So if they are you know, they're interested in going to work for a large firm or they're interested in going to work for a smaller firm or they're interested in starting their own business, kind of putting together the work that they've done, summaries of the projects they've worked on, examples of, of you know, plans and work that they've done so that they have something to show people who might be hiring them. Now, that's all aspirational because we've had, well, all aspirational, I mean, we've had some people leave and start their own businesses, which is just wonderful. And we haven't launched many to other firms yet, but we hope we have people who say to us all the time, wow, when you graduate one, I want to talk to them. So why go down this road? Like I feel like for most firms, their biggest challenge is finding good talent and finding the time to train and develop them because it takes a while to train a new financial advisor in the firm before the firm can really get a, like, a return on its dollars, a return on its investment for it, for all the, the training that it did. And You've got a structured program that train develops them, and then when they get to the point of really being productive, it's three years and you send them away. So help me understand this. <laughs> yeah. So there is one piece of it in that I think we we believe we do a really good job of of training now that we've gotten this boot camp in in play, and and we're happy to launch young people out into the profession. But I don't want to pretend that we're doing it completely out of altruism because that's not it. There's actually a business model piece to it. And it is back to this paraplanner piece and getting better trained, better educated, I should say, better educated people coming in than a paraplanner. And there's nothing wrong with having a paraplanner in your firm. I think it's a brilliant idea. These young people are coming out of CFP board registered baccalaureate or master's programs. They have all of the CFP board, you know, registered program education behind them. They've done a full financial planning degree. And so they are ripe for our training program, our boot camp, et cetera, to really pretty soon in be very, very able 
to support, you know, with ongoing supervision, of course, but with very able to support our planners at a, at a high level. Now, let me tell you the actual bottom line piece, though. Let's just use round numbers. Just say that you'd hire a new planner. I'm going to kind of do a by the coast, but, you know, just kind of an average number. So you say you hire a new planner at $50,000, and then a year later, they've done a really good job, and so they get a raise to $60,000. And, you know, a year later, they get a raise to sixty-six or seventy or whatever. Oh, and then the year later, they get a raise to eighty or eighty-five or then ninety. You know what? Okay. Well, at the end of our three years, we were replacing that person with a $50,000 employee. And so it's not – I'm really happy – to, to give nice raises to people who are going to stay forever and who maybe will be on an ownership track forever. You know what I mean? But long timers, hopefully forever. But, you know, I hope we, I hope people consider us generous in how we pay. But if it's people who are not necessarily on that track, you know, you, you can't have everyone moving to that level. You can't have every new person you hire moving onto that track unless you're growing at, a pace that is probably not a pace that we're interested in. You know, we do a lot of work for our clients. And so there's a, we, we grow very purposefully, if you will. So does that make sense? That description of the kind of the business model piece? Yeah, it, it, it does that, you know, the, one of the challenges, if you're growing at a moderate pace, but not a super fast pace, if you're hiring lots of talent, you can only create as many opportunities as you're as you're generating growth in order to create them. So if you're not growing fast enough, you can't possibly move up all your people, which means either you're going to lose them and move on anyways. They leave anyway, right? Yeah. Or they won't leave because they've been there a long time, so you keep giving them raises. So now you're paying them more because you're giving them time-based raises, but you can't give them much more responsibility because there's no room to move them up if you're not necessarily growing at a high rate. And so – they get stuck anyways, but you get stuck with either expensive employees for their job or unhappy employees because they're not getting raises and moved up. Or both. So so when you just create the assumption like you're going to have an awesome three-year runway with us and then we will help you launch onto the next thing, they're less fixated maybe on the next dollar raise. You don't have to have the obligation of figuring out how to move them up because you're going to move them on. And as long as you've built, which you have, the the training structure so that at least if you're only going to have someone on for three years, you can get more value out of them more quickly, the math works, which now in this context makes a lot of sense as to why you invested into a boot camp. Like the, the ROI for the firm of building out a really structured process is you may not have a rapid rate of growth where you're hiring a lot of people, but because your residence turn you will move through a lot of people and have to regularly train new ones, but you get an ROI because you get to reset it a new salary every time they they come on board. Like that's the ROI for the business is you manage staff costs for this level of you know just grinding work that has to get done. Tax planning projections, update the flow charts and the estate documents and the account beneficiaries and all that stuff that needs to get done in a labor intensive manner where you have to manage your staff costs. Yeah, that was that was a really good summary. That's like kind of exactly exactly it. And, you know, just to to or for everyone listening to, to realize that yes, there's a lot of stuff that a lot of analysis work that's getting in, which if you're a financial planner, you actually kind of like that piece. I I know you're like that, yep. Michael. I love my but there's also 
Right, exactly. I love nothing better than a tax doing a tax projection, I have to admit. But they also get to meet with clients. And so that's another piece of the description of the financial planning resident program. You know, they're in client meetings maybe from the first week they're in the office. And they are so you might have a one C and a two C and an RFP in there. And yes, that's labor intensive. That's a lot of man or woman power in that office. But the work that that takes off. So first of all, the one C is hopefully not doing much of the analysis work or follow-up at all, right? They're being the brains in the meeting. They're being the the expertise in the meeting, I should say. There are lots of brains in the meeting. They're being the expertise in the meeting. Then the second chair or third chair, whichever one it is, and that simply depends on how far along someone is in their career path, that person is taking some notes, but really being aware of the analysis that has been done, backing up the first year, when the first year says, okay, did we remember to include that pension that, you know, yes, we did see where it's, oh, thank you very much. And then, you know, on top of the analysis, the follow-up analysis afterwards, and the resident is taking really good notes on their iPad. They all get iPads when they come to work, work for us and they, they're taking the notes. And so that is really incredibly high and best use of those people. And they're getting to meet the clients and they're getting to see how Annalise Muir or Dave Yeski explains or describes whatever it is we're describing after doing it for 35 years. I mean, that's a learning right there. And then when the when the meeting disbands, Dave or I, we get to go just do whatever was next on our task list. And the second chair gets to have a brief meeting with that resident and go, okay, so let me see what you, yep, yep, good, 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 yep, you got that. Okay, let me look, I'm looking at my, because, you know, maybe they just took higher level notes. Oh, don't forget this piece. We said, oh, okay, great. All right, now go draft a follow-up email. And it was going to come from the second chair, not from the resident, but the resident's going to draft the email, the follow-up email. And and sure, that takes some some training and some management up front, but man, they get really good at it. Hopefully they get good they get good. It's one of the things we test when they come when they interview is how well they're how well how well they write. So if you think about that level of leverage and then the second chair gets to go back to his or her office and go, all right, I really need to dive into this estate situation with this client or this tax situation or whatever, have that conversation with the estate attorney while the resident goes and does the follow-up email. And so what are you using to just track all of this activity? When you have this many people in the firm touching the same client at once, you know, just CRM systems get really, really important. So you can literally figure out who did what and what was the last communication to the client. So what's the, what's the CRM hub for your firm? So we use Salesforce. Okay. And we use Salesforce in a way that we, when we bought it, we bought an overlay that was specifically for financial planners. And then we have customized it within an inch of its life. What was the original, what was the original overlay system that you had? Accelerate. Okay. You started with Salesforce, Accelerate, and then you've done your own customizations further from there. Yes, exactly. In fact, we used to internally call it Accelerate. And then after about four or five years, we said, yeah, it's just not anymore. It's just our, we're just going to go back to calling it Salesforce. Just because you evolved it even further for your your mom, what you guys are, are doing. Yeah, exactly. And so are you actually doing Salesforce customizations internally? Like, did you take on a team member to do that? Or are you working with 
some other outsourced firm now that helps you do all these Salesforce customizations? You know, we have done it internally. We have an employee who is just, I mean, much of the staff knows how to do some of the customization, although we're very we're very process oriented about customizing. It's just not just willy nilly. Oh, let's add another, you know, cause that'll make you crazy. You don't just add fields. But we have one employee who's just, she's particular. I mean, she's our, she's our Salesforce expert. And so we do, we spend a lot of time talking about, well, if we're going to take on this, this is something new we need to really be looking at for clients, or this is something we have not been maybe as structured about. All right. How can we use Salesforce to be able to do this? better in a way that that allows us to track. And we are, I mean, Salesforce is literally our lifeblood. We would get rid of every single piece of software, everything before we got rid of Salesforce or before we got rid of our CRM. I mean, I'm not saying we would never be open to some, if we found something better, but I mean, before we would never get rid of our CRM. Everything goes in there and we have codes for, you know, in-call, out-call, office meeting, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's just – and then all the notes go in there and I am terrible at it, but staff is really good at sorting and finding what it is they they want to find. And when these new, more junior financial planners or residents come in, when they're assigned to their clients, they go back through the CRM and they read – they might read years worth of emails and meeting notes to, to you know, get up, up to speed on what's going on with the client. So remind me of the, the business metrics again for the firm overall of, of your AUM base and the number of clients. Yeah, so we have about 240 clients. And of course, that's more human beings than 240 because right, lots of them are couples and house, household units. Household units, exactly. So, and we have about $750 million under management, 13 employees with an opening for a client service play, and that does not include Dave and I, so really 15 employees. Okay. And so I want to go back to this this point that you had raised earlier. I think you said you're, you're, the firm is predominantly AUM fees on that $750 million asset base. I'm sure if you're Predominantly AUM fees or exclusively AUM? Exclusively, exclusively AUM fees. You're not charging separately for planning at all. No. So, so just talk to us about that. You, know, I know you've you've done this for a long time. You've seen a lot of different models evolve and come in and go out over the years. So, how does a firm that's as planning centric as yours decide to to focus into a purely AUM business? So I think that there are a lot of interesting ideas floating around out there and being used by various firms in charging other than AUM. I believe that that dialogue of, you know, negotiating fees is frictional. I don't want to say loss. That's not fair, but you get my point. It takes up, it does take some capacity. So that's one piece on it. Just clever. So like just charging any other kind of fee, your concern just puts more discussion on the table and any level of discussion is just going to take some momentum away from you? Is that the context? It's just taking some time, exactly. And again, I'm not saying any of this to fault anyone else's methods. This is just our philosophy. So here's the real piece for us. We look at financial planning and asset management as kind of two separate and distinct things. And it's the assets, the savings, and the how things are invested and how it does over the long term that 
fuels to a large degree the goals of the financial plan, right? Not exclusively. There's lots of others. There's human capital. There's time. There's all kinds of other resources. But it is in the context of what we're dealing with with the clients that the, the assets fuel the financial planning goals. And so we simply have the assets fuel the financial planning fees. It is It takes the entire dialogue off the table. When we had the market downturn in 08 and 09, we had clients sit across the other side of the table for us and go, your revenues must be way down. And we're like, <laughs> yeah, good. Just I'm, I'm feeling some pain. I'm happy to know you're feeling a little too. Let's get through this yes. together. Yeah. I think you can empathize with me better because you're feeling it too. Let's, as you just said, let's get through this together. And the other piece is that we are, we keep our, it's one of the, you know, kind of back full circle to where we started. One of the reasons to stay really involved in the profession, even if it's not volunteering and go, but it's going to conferences and it's, you know, reading your stuff and reading things and listening to, to blogs, et cetera, is that you know what's going on, right? You talk to people about it. We are, we are not a, you know, we're not a, a great big bank or brokerage firm. We're a, in the whole scheme of things, we're a teeny tiny firm. We can change our fees tomorrow if we want to. It's just, you know, within 30 days, we got to have a new ADV and we just start charging a different way. So if there's a need or a desire to change, we will do that. No question. But so far, it just, it works for us. It seems to work for our clients. And, and do you, do you get anxious or concerned about the whole, like your $5 million client doesn't take twice as much time as a two and a half million dollar client? How are you, how can you charge them twice as much for the financial planning work, which isn't necessarily different? Yeah, it, it's a great question. And it's something that, as you can imagine, with 35 years under a belt, we've talked about quite a bit. So different clients need different things at different times. I have clients now, we have clients now who pay us pretty substantial fees and they're pretty easy to do. You know, there's not we're doing a good job for that, but they're not complicated. Okay. But they were 10 years ago, they were really complicated and a whole lot lower fees were being paid. So it's kind of, it's a case of all the fees coming in are supporting the firm. And then we're giving clients, we're giving every, hope, I hope our goal certainly is to give every single client everything they need. And sometimes that means people are going to be paying a pretty high rate for what they're getting and other people are going to be paying a pretty low rate and odds are pretty good that that will flip around at some point down the road. But it's also not, it's not time. It's expertise or I'll even go to, you know, wisdom. It's they're paying for kind of the our constant diligence and our real knowledge of them so that when they call me, someone or we have a, an update meeting or something, I can give them what I hoped is really excellent advice in a tenth of the time that someone else might do, but only only because they've been with me for that long, right? I mean, and I've been doing it for that long. I'm not saying other people are not as smart as I am. I'm just saying it's that built, it's that constant diligence and built relationship that makes it so that you're right, it's not going to take as much time as for for someone who's been with us a long time, because I know their situation really well. But that doesn't mean they're not getting every, you know, the value that that they're paying for. So you have this Successful firm, 750 million AUM, 240 clients. Your, your average client is a 
a multimillionaire. You've got a good growing staff base. So as you look back, I'm I'm just wondering, like, what what was the low point of this journey for you? Like, where where was it hardest in the in the evolution and growth of the business? You know, it's been there are lots of challenges to it. There was never a time when it felt bad, except in late 2008 and early 2009, when we were just, I mean, I was honestly walking around pretty much nauseous. I mean, and I'm really not exaggerating. It was pretty much not, my heart was in my throat all day, every day. You know, people were just in so much pain. Because of the stress of what was happening in the business or because of the stress of what was happening with the clients? Oh, I was, well, it was both, but it was, it was the stress of what was happening with the clients. The clients were in so much pain and it was so frightening and it was taking every ounce of energy to stick with our, our absolute fundamental belief that it's all going to be fine. You know, if it isn't, my line was, if this doesn't come back, all bets are off anyways. It doesn't matter where you put your money. The world has come to an end. You know, one of our favorite, you know, got to laugh about some people say, well, should I buy gold? And we'd say, well, you know, if things get bad enough that you actually need gold, men with guns will come to your door and steal it from you. Yeah. So that's probably not a good idea either. And of course, the other thing was that the business was struggling. I mean, I looked around one day and realized that every single person who worked for us, every single one was the primary breadwinner in their family. And, you know, we didn't reduce anyone's salaries. We didn't know, but it was it was tough. That's the only time it just, it was so bad. Now, if there have been challenges, you know, just growing, you know, I balancing for me, balancing, you know, when I, when my first marriage ended and I have this business and I have two daughters who I'm raising with my ex-husband, I was never a single mother. He's a great dad, but there was, but there's still, that's a lot to balance, you know, trying to be the mom and a hundred percent responsible for them when they were with me. And then, trying to build a business. So, you know, there have been plenty of challenges, but that's why, you know, that's that's the risk reward paradigm. That's, you know, nothing wrong with that. And even that didn't persuade you to move away from the AUM model as a way to stabilize your revenue through, you know, the inevitable next bear market that's going to come. Well, it would have been disingenuous to do that at the bottom, it seems. Okay, never mind. No AUM. Everyone's going to get a $3,000 financial planning fee. If you had done it beforehand, great. <laughs> and then once the, you know, markets turned around, it was a little, you know, it it's we we believe in the way we 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 charge and again, we're open to changing, but it didn't seem that timing was 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 going to work. Yeah. So any any tips to young advisors looking to become an advisor today and start a firm aside from Yebu has a great financial planning resident program, but yeah. <laughs> what's the advice you give new people coming in to start their advisor careers? Really put some thought into and, you know, get mentors to help you with and have conversations with your peers about your value system around financial planning and then stick with that value system. If, you know, if you, if your value system has to do with people, you know, truly living there, living an exquisite life, seek out clients who want financial planning to help them live an exquisite life. If your value system is more money is better, great, go for it. You know, seek out clients who want to accumulate as much money as possible, but just know what your value system is and stick with that. Don't work with people you don't have respect for. I mean, I don't, don't work with clients, don't work with coworkers either, but don't work with clients you don't have respect for. You know, work with clients where you go, oh, I'm so excited. So-and-so is coming in today. I can't wait. Always have such a great meeting with her. 
you know, that's, that's really the big, and that's easy for me to say, I have a business that supports me well. I know there's money, you know, people have to earn a living, but if you, you know, it's, if you build it, they will come kind of thing. It's an interesting point of just, you know, there, there's always been a saying in the industry in general that, you know, we tend to work with people like us, you know, people do business with people they know, like, and trust. We tend to like people similar to us, but you, know, you have an interesting point that just, you know, working with people like you, you also may just enjoy them more and enjoy the work more and <laughs> like being a planner more. You bet. So, so as we wrap up, this is a show about success. And one of the things we've always observed is just the word success means different things to different people, uh, sometimes different things to us at different stages in our lives. So as someone who's objectively built what anybody would call a very successful advisory business, how do you define success for yourself at this point? You know, I have... Long story short, I was raised by two wonderful parents, one of whom grew up in the Blitz in London. And so she had a serious scarcity mentality and it rubbed off on me. And I now don't live I, – I have everything I could possibly need financially. And so that to me is a huge success. Not that, not that finances are the only – measurement by any stretch of the imagination of success. But, you know, it's nice to feel, you know, that there's enough. You know, the other piece is I, to, to be in a position where I get to spend so much time giving back. I mean, if you could see how this firm, and we didn't even get to that part, but you see how this firm runs, we're bringing in three owners, three new owners, and they are 31, 27, and 27. Everyone in this firm is half my age or maybe just a little more, just about all the, you know, it's, it's, and it runs. And Dave and I leave a week from today to go to Africa for three weeks. And we have done virtually no planning around, oh my gosh, what are they going to do when we're gone? Because they already know what to do. They run the place. So that's huge success too, that I just have this firm of young people who are just freaking amazing. Well, very cool. Well, thank you for joining us and, and sharing that story of, of what you guys have built and how you built it. I, I appreciate hearing it. Well, thank you for having me on. You know financial planners every bit as well as I do. We love to talk about this profession and our, and our companies and our history. And let me tell you another thing. And yeah, so thank I goodness, appreciate or, or we wouldn't have a podcast. I love that we love there to talk go, about exactly. So I very much appreciate the opportunity to come on and talk. It was great fun. My pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us, Lisa. All right. Bye, dear. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.